Hello everyone, and welcome to the July 7th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal, in a new published opinion, reduced the evidence required to make use of the Insurance Fraud Prevention Act in medical fraud cases. Marketers are often used inside and outside of workers' compensation to induce physicians to prescribe a variety of products such as compound medications, DME. Little attention has been given when responding to lien claims in these cases to the application of the Insurance Fraud Prevention Act provisions contained in insurance codes. But now, the published opinion in the state of California versus Superior Court of Los Angeles County and Bristol-Myers Squibb may have opened this door to the use of this tool where a person was employed to recruit the doctor. Michael Wilson, a former Bristol-Myers Squibb employee representative, filed the underlying Tom action against the drug maker. The California Insurance Commissioner later intervened and participated in the litigation. The lawsuit alleges that Bristol-Myers Squibb Company engaged in a course of illegal and fraudulent conduct aimed at doctors healthcare providers, pharmacists, and insurance companies. It alleges BMS targeted high prescribing physicians, members of formulary committees, and sometimes their families to be recipients of lavish gifts and other benefits in order to induce physicians to prescribe BMS's drugs and to reward them for doing so. And it alleges that targeted physicians wrote prescriptions and submitted them to private insurance companies as a result of kickbacks BMS provided to them. The suit alleges that in carrying out this program, BMS effectively employed physicians and others to act as runners and cappers, paying them for the purpose of procuring patients whose prescriptions will be covered by insurance. This conduct, the suit alleges, violated the Insurance Fraud Prevention Act, Insurance Code Section 1871.7, as well as a number of provisions of the Penal Code. At issue in the case is the proof required to establish a violation of Insurance Code Sections 1871.7, Subdivision A, A, portion of the IFPA that relates to health insurance and workers' compensation insurance fraud. That section is informally entitled Employment of Persons to Procure Clients or Patients, Subdivision A makes it unlawful to knowingly employ runners or cappers to procure clients or patients to obtain insurance benefits. The trial court ruled in favor of BMS on a summary judgment hearing and the Court of Appeal granted writ of review due to the dearth of appellate law involving interpretation of Section 1871.7. The Court of Appeal reversed the dismissal of the claim. In doing so, it clarified the requirements for the proof of a case of violation of IFPA contained in section 1871.7. The conduct made unlawful by subdivision A is identified by a single verb, to employ. The single verb makes a single act unlawful, employment. What kind of employment is unlawful? employment of a person or persons to procure clients or patients to perform or obtain services or benefits that will be the basis for an insurance claim. Subdivision A is violated by the employment of others with that objective. It does not make proof of that result 
a prerequisite to its violation. Based upon this language, the Court of Appeal ruled that there can be a violation of Subdivision A without proof that the item or service of value provided or promised to the physician caused a particular prescription to be written. Subdivision A identifies running and capping activities as unlawful without regard to whether the resulting services are competently rendered. Running and capping activities are disfavored and unlawful, not just because they may often result in services that are excessive or unnecessary, but also because their purpose is to unfairly obtain the benefits that would otherwise might have gone to others who did not use the prohibited methods. The legislature has found running and capping to be unlawful and to be almost always a harbinger of fraud. A substantial purpose of the act is to enable the assessment of civil penalties for unlawful running and capping activities without the practically impossible showing that a particular claim resulted from a particular violation. It remains to be seen if this new case can be a viable defense to liens in such cases. The Court of Appeal ruled that a civil suit between an industrial carrier and applicant attorneys over subrogation settlement proceeds was not protected by the anti-SLAPP statute. Here's what happened in the case of Old Republic Construction Program Group versus the Bocardo Law Firm. The Bocardo Law Firm and one of its partners, John C. Stein, filed a tort case in Superior Court alleging Albert Carabello had been injured when his pickup collided with Beverly Casby. At the time of the collision, Carabello was acting in the course and scope of his employment. Old Republic was the workers' compensation insurer for Carabello's employer. Casby was insured with a policy limit of $100,000. Old Republic provided workers' compensation benefits which exceeded the $100,000 policy limit. It filed a complaint in the intervention asserting a right to reimbursement of these expenditures. Casby raised the affirmative defense of comparative negligence, which limits the ability of an employer to obtain reimbursement where the employer's own negligence contributed to the worker's injuries. Carabello and Casby agreed to settle the case for her $100,000 policy limits. Old Republic's claim to reimbursement, however, remained unresolved. Thus, Casby's insurer made the settlement check payable to Carabello, Bocardo, and Old Republic. The parties signed a stipulation stating that the settlement money would be deposited and that signatures of both parties will be required to withdraw any money. The Superior Court then set a settlement conference and trial on the apportionment of settlement proceeds. Before this was heard, Old Republic filed a notice of lien and a request to dismiss Old Republic's complaint in intervention with prejudice. Stein also dismissed the Carabello complaint with prejudice. The dismissal of the complaint by both parties meant that there was no longer any pleading before the court seeking affirmative relief. Bocardo then filed a motion authorizing release of the settlement funds to Carabello. He argued that by dismissing its pleading, Old Republic had forfeited any right to litigate the issue of employer negligence and thus to recover on its lien. The trial court, however, concluded that the dismissal of all affirmative pleadings had deprived it of any power to grant any relief. In a formal order that the court concluded that the court had no further jurisdiction 
Stein then wrote to Council for an Old Republic, indicating that he intended to distribute the deposited funds. He took issue with the prior assertion by opposing counsel that the matter can be litigated before the WCAB. Old Republic petitioned the WCAB to order disbursement of the settlement proceeds. A workers' compensation judge denied Old Republic's petition for disbursement because the settlement funds had already been dispersed by applicants' counsel. He also concluded that the WCAB lacked jurisdiction to grant the relief sought by Old Republic. The WCAB granted reconsideration and issued a decision finding that it had jurisdiction over the issues presented and remanded them for trial. Old Republic also filed a civil complaint alleging that the stipulation was a binding contract between Carabello and the Bocardo law firm. Bocardo filed a motion to dismiss a new civil action under the anti-slap law which the court denied. Bocardo appealed. The Court of Appeal in the published case ruled that the trial court correctly concluded that the cause of action sounding in breach of contract, negligence, and declaratory relief did not arise from the party stipulation for purposes of the SLAP Act. The conduct of the center of all three causes of action is defendant's withdrawal and disbursement of the settlement funds that were, that were the subject of the stipulation between defendants and counsel for Old Republic. There is no suggestion that this non-communicative conduct had any connection to any issue of public concern or interest. It therefore falls outside the protection of the SLAPT Act statute. The Sixth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals ruled against the plaintiffs in Daravon and Daravoset mass tort litigation that it's pending in several states, including California. Propexaphine is a pain reliever that was used to treat mild pain until 2010 when drugs that contain propexaphine, such as Darvon and Darvoset, were taken off the market because of safety concerns. The FDA action came nearly six years after the drug was banned in the United Kingdom and nearly a year and a half after the European Drug Agency banned it. The public interest group Citizen had petitioned the FDA to ban the drug back in 1978 and again in 2006. Following the 2006 petition, the FDA took the matter to an expert advisory committee which voted to ban the drug in July 2009. However, the FDA overruled the panel and instead asked the drug makers to conduct studies of the drug's effects on the heart. The result of those studies led finally to the FDA banning the drug. They found the drug puts patients at risk of abnormal or even fatal heart rhythm abnormalities. To date, more than 40 actions have been filed in California state courts alleging injuries related to the ingestion of propoxyphene. A major defendant is Teva Pharmaceuticals, who holds the rights to generic versions of the drugs. The group of attorneys responsible for many of the propoxyphene actions in California filed a petition last October asking the California Judicial Council to establish a coordinated proceeding for all California propoxyphene actions. Soon after the request, Teva attempted to remove the cases to federal court under the mass action provision of the Class Action Fairness Act. The federal district court held that the act did not apply and ordered the case back to state court. Teva appealed and a split panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has now affirmed the district court's decision.
Meanwhile, a federal appeals court presiding over Kentucky cases upheld the dismissal of nearly all claims in 68 Darvon and Darvazet cases this June. The plaintiffs had invoked design defect laws in 22 U.S. states in claiming that generic drug makers misbranded the drugs. Many also sought to hold brand name drug makers liable for alleged misrepresentations made to prescribing doctors. A three-judge panel of six U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Cincinnati rejected claims in 67 of the 68 cases. One lawsuit by a Mississippi woman who said her husband's use of the drugs led to cardiac failure was allowed to proceed. Friday's decision largely upheld rulings by United States District Judge Danny Reeves in Lexington, Kentucky, who oversees nationwide litigation over the drugs. Plaintiffs suffered setbacks when the U.S. Supreme Court in 2011 and 2013 shielded generic drug makers from state failure to warn claims and from state design defect claims. The Sixth Circuit decision said the plaintiffs could not pursue misbranding claims against generic drug makers over propoxyphene, having failed to allege sufficient new and scientifically significant information that was not before the FDA. He also said misrepresentation claims against the brand name drug makers must be dismissed because courts in the 22 states would not recognize such claims under their respective laws. And in regulatory news, DIR Director Christine Baker approved the implementation of the 2014-2015 Alternative Security Program, also known as ASP. This program frees $7.54 billion in working capital and provides self-insured California businesses greater financial flexibility. The ASP is a first-in-the-nation innovative program operated by the nonprofit California Self-Insurers Security Fund with the California DIR. The program provides financial guarantees to replace security deposits required to collateralize self-insured workers' compensation programs. The participation fee for the guarantee program was also reduced to 10% compared to last year. These added savings make the program and costs even more competitive for California businesses. The director said that this program benefits both the businesses and the larger California economy. With program improvements and streamlining efforts, it is now possible for a company wanting to self-insure to move from initial application to fully insured status in less than two weeks. Self-insured employers are required to maintain a deposit to collateralize their risk in an amount equal to estimated liabilities as determined by an actuary. This deposit, which can be posted in cash, letters of credit, security bo surety bonds or securities, limits the employer's ability to use the cash or credit line to expand their businesses. In contrast, ASP members' cash or line of credit is freed up, allowing them to invest the capital back into their businesses while the ASP assumes responsibility of security deposit posting requirement. California currently has nearly 10,000 self-insured employers protecting more than 4 million workers representing a total payroll of $177 billion. One of every four California workers is protected by a self-insurance plan. More information of California's workers' compensation self-insurance programs 
is available at the Office of Self-Insured Plans website. And now our fraud report. A Los Angeles area doctor has agreed to plead guilty to a federal drug trafficking charge for illegally distributing Vicodin and Norco. The DEA announced that Dr. Andrew, son of La Mirada, will enter guilty pleas to one count of distribution of hydrocodone and one count of money laundering. Son, who operated medical clinics in San Gabriel and East Los Angeles, was named in indictment that was returned by a federal grand jury about three months ago. Son admits that he prescribed these drugs and did so outside the usual course of professional practice without a legitimate medical purpose. Sun also admitted to issuing a dozen prescription prescriptions to patients who were actually undercover law enforcement officers, as well as disguising over $550,000 in cash received for issuing such prescriptions. Sun also agreed to forfeit proceeds he earned from his illegal medical practice, including approximately $342,000 seized from his bank accounts. Sun could face a statutory maximum sentence of 10 years in prison for the distribution count and 20 years for the money laundering charge. Sun also agreed to cooperate in any action taken by the medical board to revoke his medical license. And in medical news, a new study appearing in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery links the use of opiate pain relievers to less improvement and higher levels of dissatisfaction following spine surgery. A greater focus on pain management over the last decade resulted in four-fold increase in opiates such as sold to hospitals, pharmacies, and doctor's offices. And a related and ongoing increase in opiate-related complications including opiate dependence, impaired cognition, and poor treatment outcomes. In this study, 326 out of 583 patients reported some degree of opiate use prior to elective lumbar, thoracolumbar, or cervical spine surgery. Researchers collected preoperative demographic data on all patients. Daily opiate use, including opiate type, dosage, route, and frequency of administration in a 24-hour period was self-reported and converted into a morphine-equivalent amount in milligrams per day. Patient health status was measured preoperatively and at 3 and 12 months following surgery. The data showed increased preoperative opiate use and was a significant predictor of worse health outcomes and th at 3 and 12 months following surgical treatment. Every 10 milligram increase in the daily morphine equivalent amount taken preoperatively was associated with a decrease in mental and physical health and disability scores. Opiate consumption seems to occur frequently in those with psychiatric comorbidities such as depression and anxiety which may lead to increased opiate use. Thus, the study demonstrated that increasing amounts of preoperative opiate consumption may have a harmful effect on patient-reported outcomes in those undergoing spinal surgery. This highlights the importance of careful preoperative counseling with patients on high doses of preoperative opiates, pointing out the potential impact on long-term outcome and working toward narcotic reduction prior, prior to undergoing surgery. A new report 
from the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says that U.S. healthcare providers wrote 259 million prescriptions for opiate painkillers in 2012. This was enough to give a bottle of the pills to every adult in the country. The report shows prescribing rates vary widely by state for drugs best known by brand names such as Vicodin, Percocet, and OxyContin. The highest rates are in the southeast, led by Alabama. Providers in that state wrote 143 prescriptions for every 100 residents, while providers in Hawaii, the state with the lowest rate, wrote 52 for every 100 people, nearly three times fewer. Other states which, with very high rates include Tennessee and West Virginia. States with low rates include California and New York. High prescribing rates often reflect inappropriate uses of the drugs. The CDC director said that overdoses from the opiate narcotics are a serious problem across the country, and we know opiate overdoses tend to be highest where opiates get the highest use. The CDC says 46 people in the United States die from prescription painkiller overdoses each day. And in other news, the WCIB has prepared a new report about workers' compensation costs for 2013, including payments made by the California Insurance Guarantee Association. The reports help us understand where all the money goes. California year 2013 earned premiums totaling $14.4 billion. Total insurer paid losses in 2013 were $8.4 billion, or 58% of earned premium. Combining insurer-paid losses with a $1.9 billion increase in total loss reserves resulted in total incurred losses of $10.3 billion, or 72% of the premium earned. $5.2 billion, or 61% of total loss payments, were for medical services. $3.4 billion, or 39% of total loss payments, were for indemnity benefits. In total, California insurers have incurred about $5.3 billion in expenses, or 37% of earned premium. In total, incurred losses and expenses in, calendar year, in the calendar year 2013 were $15.6 billion, or 108% of earned premium. The WCARB estimates policyholder dividends to be 0.4% of earned premium, resulting in an underwriting loss of $1.3 billion, or 8.8% of premium. Although generally part of incurred indemnity losses rather than expenses, the amount paid in to applicant attorneys in 2013 was $457 million. At the bottom end of paid medical expenses, 4% was paid for medical cost containment programs, minus 3% for medical legal evaluations, and 2% for Medicare set-asides. Physicians were, on the other hand, paid 36% of the dollars allocated to this category. The top 5% recipients by percentage were general and family practice physicians, followed by physical therapists, clinics, orthopedists, and then radiology services. Chiropractors were ninth, with 1.3% of total medical paid. Psychiatrists were 11th, and psychologists were 13th on the list. By medical legal specialty, orthopedists had 66% of the number of reports, followed by psychiatry at 14%, and internal medicine and cardiology at 6%. Thus, 
The ortho-psych case continues to be a popular combination punch. In terms of money flowing to injured workers, temporary disability was 48%, and permanent, dis permanent partial disability payments followed at 42%. Life pensions took 3% of the dollars, while total permanent disability was 4%. Death benefits were 2% of paid indemnity benefits. Well, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and drop by again for more, more news next week.